The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you guys pray with me once more? And Father, you are worthy of worship. You are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy of our worship, and we delight to do so. And we continue to do so now as your holy word is opened and it is preached from, it is imparted to one another. And I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray, my God, that you would bless the preaching of your word as we continue in our worship service this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church family, it is wonderful to see all your faces. I ask you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 13. Let me have a good morning. Oh, come on now. Let me have a good morning. All right, that's better. I get myself there as well. What a glorious morning it is. And thank you, music team, for opening our worship service, and Ben for their heartfelt prayer. I just I love gathering. I love worshiping with my brothers and sisters. So, let's get into Psalm 13. But actually, before we do so, I want to I say something that bears repeating. I've said it before about the Psalms, and that is, I love the Psalms. I really, really do. I find them so helpful. I always have a bookmark. Right now, I have two bookmarks in the book of Psalms. Um, And I start my time in God's Word each day with a psalm, usually reading one or two of them before moving on to another portion portion of Scripture. And I simply make laps through the book of Psalms. When I finish the last chapter, chapter 150, I move the bookmark to Psalm 1 to go through it again from start to finish. And every time, each day, I am ministered to by God through them in a manner that carries through and readies my heart and mind to hear from God and the other portions of Scripture I'm spending time seeking Him in. The book, the book of Psalms as a whole, was put together and arranged for this purpose. Saints of old, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took these 150 collections of songs and poems, and they thoughtfully, with the Holy Spirit's guidance, they thoughtfully arranged them in a specific order for helpful instruction for Christians, for you and for me, through the ages, to pray and meditate upon. For instance, the whole book of Psalms is its lament heavy in the beginning over praise. But then as as you course through it, as the, the 150 chapters, it shifts to have greater praise psalms over the lament all the way through to the end. Kind of like, you see I'm doing this, kind of like a a scale. It just kind of shifts as you work your way through it. Lament heavy in the beginning and then shifts to being praise heavy in the end. And as you course through the book, you'll discover, you will regularly discover mingled through the chapters in varying degrees, some balancing tension, tension existing between either Torah, Messiah, lament, praise, or faith and hope. Sort of like a a static line. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say a static line? Is it attached between two? Well, for there to be, for you to be able to balance on that static line, there needs to be proper tension. 
the Psalms are arranged with this type of tension to direct our gaze forward from Torah to Messiah, lament to praise, and faith and hope. For biblical faith, biblical faith is looking forward, right? It's looking forward, as Tim Mackey rightly says. So when you encounter the Torah in the Psalms, on the other end of the strap is the Messiah. When we lament and are burdened with sorrow over sin, over the condition of the world, as we should be, the tension that exists there is brought about by the pulling on the other end of the strap, and that is that we have reason to praise. As we look ahead to what Christ has done, as what, to what he has accomplished, what we have in him that is secure in the heavens, that God will make all things right. So though we have... Though we lament, we have cause for praise. And right now, we see through the eyes of faith, right? But faith is the substance of things hoped for. There's there's that tension pole. We have hope. It's what we are saved to. We are saved to a hope that cannot be taken away. We see dimly through the eyes of faith now as we look forward to the rock-solid, everlasting hope we have waiting for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So are you tracking with me with, in regards to this, this tug and pull, this tension that exists in the Psalms between these three sets of pairs? And you'll encounter this as you go through the Psalms. It, the book of Psalms works that dance into your soul, if you will. And therefore, I encourage you, if you haven't already, I encourage you just to make it a regular part of your study. You know, not necessarily the central focus, but just begin there to to just work your way through God's word to begin there. And so for me, I really appreciate, as a church body, the way we're coursing through this book from start to finish, preaching through each individual chapter and taking all 150 chapters in portions of 10, right? This is the second time we've done this, spending 10 weeks for 10 chapters between other books of the Bibles preached. Recently, we finished what? Ephesians. And we're quickly approaching, and what is quickly approaching after Genesis, or excuse me, oh my goodness, I just did it. (laughs) What's quickly approaching? Drum roll. I can't, screw that one. Um, Yeah, Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis and then to Revelations. So following Ephesians, though, before we launch off there, we have this sweet opportunity to be ministered to from God's word and through 10 weeks in the Psalms, taking one chapter at a time. And so today, our third week, and therefore a couple strides now into our second stint in Psalms, we find ourselves in chapter 13. So let's read through this. It's a shorter psalm. Let's read through this in its entirety and listen and hear for that tension that exists. Okay? So let's read through this again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. So let me hear it. Which pair did you hear? Anyone? Lament praise. Very good. Lament praise. This is helpful. Now, with that in mind, what is the underlying truth this psalm is providing for us as helpful instruction? God's word is always helpful instruction. It's always truth. It's always pointing to Christ, and it always has application in our lives. So what do we see here in this Psalm 13? For starters... 
How many times does he cry out to God, How long, O Lord? How long? How many times do you see that? Four times. Four times he says that. My family and I recently took a road trip to Bozeman, Montana, and back. Any guesses how many times Grace and Matthew asked, how much longer? How much longer do we get there? More than four, absolutely. So like the psalmist, they were in a place of waiting. They were at a place of waiting. Waiting. This, this sparked a distant memory of mine far back when I was probably the age of Silas and Joseph or, or, or Jane and Avriel. How old are you guys? Eight. Bingo. Like eight or nine. Okay. Well, it happened. On an afternoon hunting outing with my dad, my older brother and I, at a place not far from our home in Keno, walked through the woods with our dad hunting for deer. And no encounters happened to my recollection. And we, Josh and I, were reaching the point of being done. Just spent. Mentally and physically spent as as youths. So we returned to the truck. It was at early dusk. Which, mind you, is prime hunting hours. Okay? And our father safely placed us in the truck and said that he was going to do one more short hunt around this knoll, expecting deer to be out and about during these prime final minutes of daylight. It wasn't going to be long, he said. And when, I get, and, and when it gets dark, or when it got dark, he instructed us to honk the horn a couple times to help him easily get his bearing on his return. Maybe you know where this is going. Well, Josh and I had a carefree time in the truck for a fair while as the sun was setting. And then the sun was set, and darkness of night began encroaching upon us. Now, we weren't jumping the gun, because it's, it's not dark yet. We're doing fine. Not afraid of a little darkness happening, you know? Sun's down, but there's still light. So we're, we're fine. We held out fairly well for a time. But then it reached a point where we both agreed, yeah, it's, it's dark. Let's give, the, let's give the horn a honk. So, honk, honk. We waited a little bit. Looked around for a flashlight to see. Nothing. No flashlight seen. Huh. Let's give it another honk. Honk, honk. Still nothing. Honk, honk. Nothing still. Oh boy. This isn't good. Honk, honk. Our hearts are trembling now. Minds racing with what ifs. We start looking at our food and water supply, thinking how we're going to ration it. Now bear in mind, Bear in mind, maybe five, ten minutes have lapsed (laughs) since our first honk. But to a nine-year-old, that's forever. That is forever. And at this point, we are laying on the horn. Honk, honk. It's like, we're going to die. We're going to die. I mean, we did not stop. My poor dad. What a scene, right? My poor dad terrified by what might be happening, quickly abandons his stalk on a young buck, no joke, and he comes racing back out of breath to save us of our grief. And likely the truck battery that was quickly being drained. Now, and when he returned, you know, all was restored. 
And now I share that story as an example of how we can be when we are waiting on someone or something. And this psalm that has a lament, praise, tension, activity happening instructs us of a valuable truth in regards to waiting. Waiting. It has all sorts of different shapes, doesn't it? Waiting for a diagnosis from the doctor. Waiting for full recovery from an affliction suffered. Waiting for news to come of the welfare of a family or the outcome of a decision involving you, that be of a, maybe a scholarship or a job position you've applied for, perhaps. Even just, even just arriving at a decision, you are rightly leaning upon the Lord for wisdom and discernment in making. Like, when am I going to know what that is, Lord? When will I have clarity and peace about which path to take? I'm waiting upon you. When am I going to know? Maybe you are waiting to be delivered from a specific sin that has a stronghold on you. You're feeling like you just cannot be rid of it. Not set free. You're, you're doing the right things. You're seeking God to deliver you, and it still has this, this firm grip. You're waiting on him for that. Maybe it's, it's closeness to God. This closeness to God, seeking him for this an outpouring of his spirit into your heart that produces a great assurance and power in your life. The very thing he says in his word to ask him for, that he will give you. You are seeking him for it, trusting in his promise to provide it. But it, but it has not yet been given. You are still waiting for it. Anyone here waiting for your child to soften to the gospel and to respond with love and joyful surrender to Jesus Christ? Or for your neighbor to take that invitation for the umpteenth time and actually come to worship service with you? Or that coworker waiting for your prayers to be answered for that loved one, that family member, whomever it is, to be saved? Waiting. What is it that you are waiting for right now? There may be multiple things. Waiting. We know that God is sovereign, right? We know that God is sovereign and therefore, therefore controls all. Thus, it's accurate to say that all our waiting is ultimately upon the Lord. We may be waiting on someone else for a decision, but... We're waiting on God ultimately. I mean, he turns the hearts of kings like a stream of water wherever he wills. Proverbs 21.1. He puts into the mind of men and women what he will. He is sovereign. We can ask and receive from God, but we can't take from him. All creation awaits his command and is held together by him. So though our waiting may certainly and often does involve others, you know, the result of a test, coming to a decision, the outcome of a job application, and so forth, the waiting is ultimately on God. And the waiting that trumps all waiting is awaiting the return of Christ, amen? The Lamb of God. Once he returns, there will be no more waiting, I mean, what are we waiting for at that point, right? Waiting ceases at that point. We will know even as we are known. We won't see dimly anymore as through a mirror, but clearly face to face. But till then, till then, we wait on him who is worth waiting for. Jesus Christ, our conquering risen king. That is the underlying truth. Jesus is worth waiting for. He is. Whether that be his ultimate return or his provision for whatever it is before you that you are looking to him and waiting upon him for. Jesus is worth waiting for. 
the scriptures abound with this precious promise in store for those who wait upon the Lord. Allow me to provide us, us with some, excuse me, excuse me, with one of them. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men, in their stoutness, right, shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What a promise. What a truth. Stand firm on this. Hold this promise close to your heart. Jesus is worth waiting for. And with this truth before us, we now look to Psalm 13. What an intro, right? We now look to Psalm 13 to receive instruction in regards to waiting. There are three points of instructions involved in the waiting, which we have opportunity to receive from God's word this morning to put into practice. The first is the honest reality that is difficult. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. Waiting is difficult. For what is being asked of us when waiting? Be patient. You guys are even afraid to say it, right? Be patient. In the waiting, we are learning patience. Patience is what is being asked of us. Patience is a virtue. I know that saying. Stop saying it. It's trying my patience, right? Patience. Waiting is difficult. And it's right to recognize that in the waiting... In the waiting, there is pain in learning patience. Our first point, pain in learning patience. There are three aspects of this painful waiting highlighted for us in verses 1 through 2. The first and most primary is not feeling God's presence. A brief flashback to the opening illustration with my dad and brother. Countless times, countless times, my brothers and I walked through thick darkness with our dad, having not a clue where we were and being totally fine with that, right? Flashlight time, just looking at different wilderness at night with a flashlight thinking I'm looking forward to that soda when I get back to camp with dinner. I mean, those were the thoughts that occupied my interests. I had no concerns. You take my dad out of the equation, things got really spooky quickly, right? Things went bad or things went south quickly. I'm in a bad place when that happens. Well, similarly, for a Christian to not feel the presence of God, they too are feeling the troubling effects of it. Keep in mind here, in Psalm 13, this is not involving one who is unrepentant in sin, in which God would indeed feel far away. You know, only conviction of sin leading to repentance will welcome you back into fellowship with God when this is the case. Only true repentance is the remedy to usher you back into his presence. But this is not the tone here in Psalm 13. This child of God, which happens to be David, who wrote this psalm, this child of God does not show any indication that his, that his sin is the issue. And yet, clearly, 
God feels very distant to him. Like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? Listen up. A Christian experiencing this is not abnormal. Rather very normal. Dare I say common to experience this from time to time in their Christian life. Jesus was in this space at one time. Do the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ring a bell. Words cried out to the Father by Jesus as he was dying on the cross. So being in such a place is not abnormal for a Christian, and it is painful to be there. How long, O Lord? And there are two aspects about this undesirable place given attention to in these opening two verses that involve the Christian's activity while in this state. And they are solitude and sorrow. That's two there, but that's as one. Solitude and sorrow. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And this is followed followed closely behind by the wonder of when things will be made right. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? All this experienced through the pain and learning patience. And I believe at this point, it will be helpful to identify with an Old Testament brother in Christ to draw practical illustrations from that we then may apply them to ourselves. From Genesis, from Genesis chapters 40 and 41, there is a, we have a snippet in the life of Joseph is what comes to mind to do so. Joseph, who was a weak man and tried by God through patience, These two chapters find Joseph in prison where he is used by God to interpret dreams. The opportunity which comes to him to do so is with two of his fellow inmates. One, a cupbearer for Pharaoh, and the other, Pharaoh's baker. You guys know the story. He, Joseph, exercises his God-given gift in a manner that glorifies God. Joseph carefully gives all the glory to God in providing the interpretation of these dreams. If you read through that, the way he even expresses it is so God-glorifying. He doesn't take credit himself. He was a meek man, the the meek man of God who who was shaping him to be such. And on the heels of him miraculously providing the interpretations, Joseph then humbly asks to be remembered. That's all he says, just remember me. Not even by his own name, but that he was a Hebrew wrongly placed in prison. Joseph respectfully made known his innocence. And please note, he was not a stranger to these men, right? Joseph in prison was entrusted by the prisoner guard with oversight of the responsibilities of the prison. Time has lapsed in which Joseph demonstrated his steadfastness and faithfulness to that which which was before him. So he had a reputation, same as he did in Potiphar's house, a good reputation. And now he blesses the cupbearer by interpreting his dream, which probably brought great hope to him before it came to pass the next day. And Joseph simply asks him, simply asks him to remember him when he is restored to his office as the cupbearer for Pharaoh, one who is regularly in the presence of Pharaoh and therefore, to a degree, has a platform to speak into Pharaoh's ear. It's a reasonable request, wouldn't you say? One that Joseph, I believe, was waiting on the Lord to act on. Now consider... Clearly, the Lord was working in his life, in Joseph's life. He was, 
Joseph was able to use his God-given gift in a way that brought glory to God. Surely God is at work. Joseph had been thinking that. God was at work in delivering Joseph from prison. I picture every time the prison door opened, Joseph's head, Joseph's head lifted with that expectation, that hopeful expectation. Heart pounding. Is this, is this the day Pharaoh is going to release me? Is it happening right now? Hopeful excitement, thinking like freedom, finally. I can taste it. Finally, finally, my innocence is vindicated. I don't deserve to be in this prison. I was falsely accused and sentenced, though not guilty. Like truth prevails. God has delivered me. He has heard my cries. Praise be to God. The door opens. Nothing out of the ordinary takes place. Things are as they have been for so long. 13 years, to be precise. No deliverance this day. But maybe it'll be tomorrow. It's getting Joseph's head right now, right? Maybe it's tomorrow or even next week. I mean, I get it. I get it. Let the cupbearer get a footing in his returned role. Let him get some established presence there, some some trust and relationship he's able to to, to have with Pharaoh as his cupbearer. Give him time. So yeah, I get it. You know, just like patience, Joseph. Patience. You got to talk to yourself. Like patience, Joseph. Give him time. It'll come. Give it some time. A week passes, then a few weeks, and now a month, still nothing. Joseph's hands on the horn. No, he's teasing. Still nothing, right? At what point, I have a question, at what point do you think Joseph stopped lifting his head with hopeful anticipation when that prison door opened? After six months, you know, half a year, at that point, you think he was like, whatever that was about, I don't know, but it's over. But hold on a sec, hold on. This is Joseph we're talking about. He is a biblical stud among the, amongst the patriarchs, right? It's Joseph. Joseph could wait a solid year and not lose hope that God had not forgotten him, that God would bring him deliverance. Yeah. A year passes, still nothing. How long was it? How long was it before God did finally bring deliverance for Joseph? It's two years. Two years from the time he saw the cupbearer leave with that dream interpreted by Joseph who gave glory to God to be able to do so. Like, remember me. Don't forget about me. Two years passes. Nothing. Though the scripture does not provide this detail, I'm of the opinion that there was a day before two years was reached where Joseph's head just ceased lifting up at the sound of that prison door. I'm not saying he lost hope, but I do believe he reached a point where the pain and learning patience was so great, the silencing or the silence so deafening that he stopped looking up. It just, it just was not in him anymore to do so. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face to me? Were cries, I believe, rising from his heart, even when he had no strength, was found to put words into his mouth to say them. Solitude and sorrow were familiar companions in that dark prison cell with Joseph. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
the faces of his false accusers, his brothers, Potiphar's wife, those who sought him harm, though he was innocent of any wrong done, were perhaps tormenting his mind's eye, laughing at him, mocking him. How long, O Lord, shall my enemy be exalted over me? Me, here in prison, they, my false accusers, my enemy, still free and exalted over me. When will things be made right? This is what I picture of Joseph during this place and time. Why is that? He was a man like David who wrote this psalm. Like any one of us who reached that place of agonizing pain and learning patience. Pain and learning the patience being asked of us. Like, how long? How long? I'm in agony here, Lord. How long? Have you entered into this space with me where Joseph was? Are you in the prison cell with Joseph who is no longer lifting his head? Hope in his heart is just a a flickering light. Do these words penned by David, how long, O Lord, how long do you identify with those words as one who has been in familiar or similar waters, who perhaps are in them now? Okay, being in this space, now what? What can, what can bring us help in such a despairing place? We agree that it is helpful first to acknowledge this, that there is pain in learning patience. And we can all relate to this. We share in seasons of this. It does, it does us no good to pretend It doesn't. So we acknowledge this reality. But, but we are not to be paralyzed by it. Let it be what it is and direct your heart to what will be helpful to you in the pain. And that is prayer. For there is helpfulness in knowing God hears. Which is our second point of instruction in regards to Jesus being worth waiting for. The helpfulness in knowing God hears. First off, it's important to make a distinction here. For we are talking about prayer But the point of focus is the help which comes from knowing God hears our prayer. For God hears all, right? He hears all. The lightest touch of an ant's foot crawling across the ground is audible in the ear of God. So we're not talking about God's ability to hear We are talking about about God hearing in a manner that reaches his heart and therefore is helpful helpful to us, his children, when we know this to be so. So how can we? How can we know this to be the case and thereby be helped along when we are in the pains of waiting? How can we know that? It really stems from our posture in prayer. You know, God's eyes see and his eyelids test the children of men. Do you, do you remember that passage a couple weeks ago in Psalm 11? God knows the difference between rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub sort of prayers 
and those likened to the psalm here. Now, as we read through verses 3 and 4, from which we draw this second point, listen to the essence of the words being lifted up to God with confidence that they are being heard. Verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. I believe great help comes to God's children in knowing that he hears our prayers. And we can be confident through faith in Christ that when we approach our Father with such posture, a posture that's non-presumptuous, a humble posture of one poor and needy, pleading for God to come to their rescue, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Not appealing to God for their own name, but for his namesake. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. For the child of God, like David here, who wrote Psalm 139, In verses 20 through 22, writes this in that chapter. Your enemies, speaking to God, your enemies, God, take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. I count them my enemies, a child of God. The Christian in right posture before their God is chiefly concerned about the glory of God's name and therefore appeals for the sake of his name to not let our shared enemies triumph over us. Now listen, whether that be through them being cut off and put to shame, certainly there, but also, also like ourselves who were once enemies of God, having them, same as us, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's one of the two. It's one of the two, having God save them as, same as he did us, redeeming them to become children of God through the gospel. So when we, when we approach, when our approach to God in prayer bears such posture, we will be helped in knowing that such prayer is heard that is heard by God in a manner that touches his heart. This is helpful to know when it feels like he is absent and has forsaken you. Why do I believe this to be so? Scripture provides us with the assurance that it does. Psalm 34, 17 through 20. When the righteous cry for help, The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says this, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, that'd be God, who then makes clear here, I dwell in the high and holy place and also, you hear that? And also with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I mean, how glorious is this? Scripture abounds with promise that brokenness, honest outpouring before God with humility and chief concern for God's glory is a posture of prayer that will reach the depths of God's heart when he hears it. 
And oh, what help it is to know this for those who wait upon him who is worth waiting for. I mean, if, if my earthly dad, who is a sinner like I, hurriedly came to the cries of his two sons, wailing and leaning on the horn, how much more, how much more will our heavenly father hasten to the cries to him when coming from a contrite and humble posture? Dear saint, he will not delay deliverance any measure beyond what he determines necessary for our benefit in learning the virtue of patience. Because he is doing a work and whatever his purpose is behind it, but he will not delay. He will deliver. The word of God we tremble at promises so. In the agony of waiting upon the Lord, as it feels sometimes, suffering the pain of learning patience, there is helpfulness in knowing God hears. In doing so, tension is then applied to move away from lament. We're bouncing on that static line again. Away from lament on towards praise. We started with lament and we end with praise. Why so? Because there is power in giving praise. There is power in giving praise, whatever the season. Sometimes it's easy. Woohoo, dancing, arms up. Other times it's certainly not. But it's not a reason not to give praise, and there is power in praise every time. Our third and final point in verses five through six power in giving praise. See if you can pick up the helping verbs here. The helping verbs and main verbs in the passage that are the key to the praise being given. Verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I have trusted. My heart shall rejoice. There's that biblical faith looking forward, right? I will sing because he has dealt bountifully with me. A child of God, bolstered by past faithfulness of God, can therefore draw hope to see the bounty we have in him in the present and in the fulfillment of the promises that await us. Let's go back to Joseph in prison one more time. Do you think his thoughts at some point went back to when his brothers threw him in the pit? Left him there as good as dead? Is it a likelihood that Joseph took counsel in himself of God's past faithfulness, thinking, God was merciful to me then. You know, even as a 17-year-old punk, he showed himself faithful to me. And God hasn't changed. He is still the same faithful God who rescued me then and who hears my cry to him now. Do you think his thoughts, Joseph's thoughts, pondered there? And not just once, maybe return there time and time again over those two years. Joseph bolstering strength of heart from God's past faithfulness to draw hope for in the present. Joseph who went from a pit to the head of Potiphar's house who went from a place of despair to a place of prestige and honor, and now, though innocent, falsely accused once again in a place one could despair 
a prison cell for years on end? God knows my innocence. I trust him. Same as I did before. I trust him. You know, I know and trust in God's steadfast love. I believe he was doing this. You and I, brother and sister in Christ, we can look back and recall God's faithfulness. His steadfast love shown to us in our lives. It, it musters hope for the present. And saint, you look far enough back, you look far enough back, where are you going to land? Where are you going to land? The day you first believed. The day you first believed. Jesus uses the same reasoning. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus speaking these words in rebuke to the church in Ephesus in Revelations 2.4, but embedded in that is that first love. That first love, when we first believed the gospel, that first time your eyes were open to the glories of Christ, the blinds were lifted, and you saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, happy day that was. Your sins washed away, living water sprung within and out of your soul. You look far enough back, and you remember, I believed. I came to believe the gospel. I heard it many, many times. I even understood or knew it by knowledge. But then I believed. I believed. I once did not, but now I do, and I still do. I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he, Jesus, came from the Father, laid down his life as a ransom for me, paying the full measure of God's wrath against me for my sin. I believe that he rose again on the third day. The tomb is empty, just as he said he would. We celebrate this fact today, Christian. We do every day, but today, signally, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. I believe that he ascended to the Father and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I believe he will return. I believe through faith in him I can be forgiven and am able to stand blameless now before my Holy Father in heaven, adopted into his family, belonging to him. I am saved. I am saved. This one thing is sure. This continually helps you in the present. I am saved that you are dealt bountifully with every moment because you believe. You believe. That's why that Jeremy Camp song, I Still Believe, is so powerful. I still believe. I mean, how many here know of one who has renounced their faith in the Lord Jesus, who's no longer walking with Christ? We hear or read about them. No doubt many of us know some to the ache of our heart. But nevertheless, it happens. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Dear friend, if you wake up in the morning believing, it is by the power and the grace of God that you do. Praise God for that bounty of believing faith that unites you to Christ and secures your inheritance in him. Yet don't presume upon this grace. Rather, seek him diligently all the more that that it would only strengthen. Pray for the Lord your soul to keep. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. 
If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That childhood prayer, if lifted up to your father from a sincere heart, that's an accurate and worthy prayer to speak. Psalm 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Keep me. Keep me. Oh, what a fitting and great prayer to regularly lift up. Keep me. When you arrive here, it compels you forward into praise. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation that I am a recipient of. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me right now and continually forever. I believe I love Jesus. Erupting into such praise has powerful effect to rise your soul above your circumstances. There is power in giving praise. God, God, this is what I want to do in the pain. In the difficulty of waiting upon you, I will worship and adore you, for you are worthy of it and are worth waiting for. This, beloved, this is what Paul was speaking of in Romans 8. Let's turn there to conclude. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. This is what he's talking about. And he joins all creation with it. If you guys know the passage I'm speaking of, future glory is the heading, right? You probably see that in your Bibles as well. Verse 18, we're going to read through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, praise God for that, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is now hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And it is so, he is so worth waiting for. Let's pray. Father, I dare even add words to those closing passages preserved in, in, this, in your scriptures that you spoke through Paul, your servant. Wait Eagerly wait. Though groaning now, we do eagerly wait till you return. Help us, God. Keep our heads lifted up. And if our heads can't, for too weak, may our souls still be lifted up to you, clinging to Christ, the hope alive. And though it's painful, God, may we welcome patience being learned. May we, even in the pain, as your word instructs us, wait silently, quietly, trusting in you. Not passive. There may be things involved, activity, but, but a holy type of waiting, a waiting that is expressive of a heart that trusts you, that loves you, that knows your steadfast love and does not despair because of the hope we have in Christ. Thank you, God, for your word and the time that you have granted us to spend in it. I pray it nourishes our souls. I pray the truth of it is shared by all.
Holy Spirit, take it and minister and strengthen, build up your church. Strong in faith with great, intense love for Jesus. In whose name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.